0: everyone welcome to a new chapter in our daily pulp thing where I'm gonna have guests now and our first guest is my old pal James Urbaniak actor writer director uh, legendary Twitter user Uh, and he's gonna read from a great book that he just finished James join us please oh hello (laughs) I didn't see you there Hi David, no, good to see you. Great to see you too, James. In the, I should have had you come through a door, <laughs> like <laughs> it was you know, the Sonny and Cher show in the 1970s. James Urbaniak, yeah. hey, buddy, look who's here, it's James Urbaniak.
1: I could have had my wife hold the camera and <laughs> yeah, yeah. I could right. come through the front door, but uh, hey, don't go outside if you don't have to, I say.
0: Exactly, uh, so James is gonna talk to us about John Fonte, I think that's how it would be best pronounced.
1: I've been saying Fante, but uh, whatever could be,
0: works. Could be true. Who and knows
1: how they said it in the old country?
0: Exactly. The old country of Hollywood in the 1930s. <laughs> I, I think the book is from. But uh, James has, uh, is gonna read us a chapter from Fante's,
1: after- do you remember what year the book's from? Yes, the book was published in 39. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a book called Ask the Dust, uh, and, but it's set in 33 because the Long Beach earthquake Mm. uh, occurs at one point and I looked it up and that happened in 33. So, it's ostensibly 33. All right, I'm just going to preface this by saying a few things. This is a very short chapter, it's only seven and a half pages, but I thought it worked really well as a standalone story and there are definitely noirish elements. Uh, the main character is a young man named Arturo Bandini. He's a young writer living in LA. He's originally from Colorado. Uh, He's very down and out, he's living in a cheap hotel downtown in the neighborhood they used to call Bunker Hill, which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, which is sort of like where the Walt Disney (laughs) uh, uh, Symphony Hall is now. Uh, And the only things you have to know are he, his claim to fame is that he sold one short story to a magazine called The Little Dog Laughed, (laughs) and uh, it's not a big magazine. And he made a little money from that, but he's really waiting for the next opportunity. He's also waiting for inspiration to strike. He has an editor out of town named Hackmuth, who's the editor of that magazine. Uh, There's a mouse that visits him occasionally in his room that he's named Pedro. I think that's all you need to know. Oh, and at one point, because he is a writer, he mentions the 19th century French writer, J.K. Wiesemont. So when you hear me make the noise, Wiesemont, I'm not sneezing, (laughs) I'm trying to say a French name. And here we go, chapter three from Ask the Dust by John Fante. The lean days, blue skies with never a cloud, a sea of blue, day after day, the sun floating through it, the days of plenty, plenty of worries, plenty of oranges. Eat them in bed, eat them for lunch, put them down for dinner. Oranges, five cents a dozen, sunshine in the sky, Sun juice in my stomach. Down at the Japanese market, he saw me coming, that bullet-faced, smiling Japanese, and he reached for a paper sack, a generous man. He gave me 15, sometimes 20 for a nickel. You like banana? Sure, so he gave me a couple of bananas. A pleasant innovation, orange juice and bananas. You like apple? Sure, so he gave me some apples. Here was something new, oranges and apples. You like peaches? Indeed, and I carried the brown sack back to my room. An interesting innovation, peaches and oranges. My teeth tore them to pulp, the juices skewering and and whimpering at the bottom of my stomach. It was so sad down there in my stomach. It was so much weeping, and the little gloomy clouds of gas pinched my heart. My plight drove me to the typewriter. I sat before it, overwhelmed with grief for Arturo Bandini. Sometimes an idea floated harmlessly through the room. It was like a small white bird It meant no ill will. It only wanted to help me, dear little bird, but I would strike it, hammer it out across the keyboard, and it would die on my hands. What could be the matter with me? When I was a boy, I'd pray to St. Teresa for a new fountain pen. My prayer was answered. Anyway, I did get a new fountain pen. Now I pray to St. Teresa again. Please, sweet and lovely Saint, give me an idea. But she has deserted me. All the gods have deserted me, and like Wiesmann, I stand alone. My fists clenched, tears in my eyes. Someone only loved me, even a bug, even a mouse. But that too belonged to the past. Even Pedro had forsaken me now, now that the best I could offer him was an orange peel. I thought of home, of spaghetti swimming in rich tomato sauce, smothered in Parmesan cheese of mama's lemon pies, of lamb roasts and hot bread, and I was so miserable that I deliberately sank my fingernails into the flesh of my arm until a spot of blood appeared. It gave me a great satisfaction. I was God's most most miserable creature, forced even to torturing myself. Surely upon this earth, no grief was greater than mine. Hackmuth must hear of this. Mighty Hackmuth, who fostered genius in the pages of his magazine. Dear Mr. Hackmuth, I wrote, describing the glorious past. Dear Hackmuth, page upon page, the son of ball of fire in the west, slowly strangling in a fog bank rising off the coast. There was a knock on my door, but I remained quiet because it might be that woman after her lousy rent. Now the door opened, and a bald, bony, bearded face appeared. It was Mr. Helfrick, who lived next door. Mr. Helfrich was an atheist, retired from the army, living on a meager pension, scarcely enough to pay his liquor bills, even though he purchased the cheapest gin on the market. He lived perpetually in a gray bathrobe without a cord or a button, and though he made a pretense at modesty, he really didn't care, so that his bathrobe was always open and you saw much hair and bones underneath. Mr. Helfrich had red eyes, because every afternoon when the sun hit the west side of the hotel, he slept with his head out the window, his body and legs inside. He had owed me 15 cents since my first day at the hotel, and after many futile attempts to collect it, I'd given up hope of ever possessing the money again. This had caused a breach between us, so I was surprised when his head appeared inside my door. He squinted secretively, pressed a finger to his lips, and shh me to be quiet, even though I hadn't said a word. I wanted him to know my hostility, to remind him that I had no respect for a man who failed to meet his obligations, Now he closed the door quietly and tiptoed across the room on his bony toes, his bathrobe wide open. Do you like milk, he whispered. I certainly did, and I told him so. Then he revealed his plan. The man who drove the Alden milk route on Bunker Hill was a friend of his. Every morning at four, this man parked his milk truck behind the hotel and came up the back stairs to Helfrick's room for a drink of gin. And so, he said, if you like milk, all you have to do is help yourself. I shook my head. That's pretty contemptible, Helfrick. And I wondered at the friendship between Helfrick and the milkman. If he's your friend, why do you have to steal the milk? He drinks your gin. Why don't you ask him for milk? But I don't drink milk, Helfrich said. I'm doing this for you. This looked like an attempt to square him out of the dead he owed me. I shook my head. No thanks, Helfrick. I like to consider myself an honest man. He shrugged, pulled the bathroom around him. Okay, kid, I was only trying to do you a favor. I continued my letter to Hackmuth, but I began to taste milk almost immediately. After a while, I couldn't bear it. I lay on the bed in the semi-darkness, allowing myself to be tempted. In a little while, all resistance was gone, and I knocked on Helfrick's door. His room was madness, pulp western magazines over the floor, a uh, bed with sheets blackened, clothes strewn everywhere, and clothes hooks on the wall conspicuously naked, like broken teeth in a skull. There were dishes on the chairs, cigarette butts pressed out the window sills. His room was like mine, except that he had a small gas stove in one corner, and shelves for pots and pans. He got a special rate from the landlady, so that he did his own cleaning and made his own bed, except that he did neither. Elfric sat in a rocking chair in his bathrobe, gin bottles around his feet. He was drinking from a bottle in his hand. He was always drinking, day and night, but he never got drunk. I've changed my mind, I told him. He filled his mouth with gin, rolled the liquor around in his cheeks, and swallowed ecstatically. It's a cinch, he said. Then he got to his feet and crossed the room toward his pants, which lay sprawled out. For a moment, I thought he was gonna pay back the money he owed me, but he did no more than fumble mysteriously through the pockets, and then he returned empty-handed to the chair. I stood there. That reminds me, I said. Wonder if you could pay the money I loan you. Haven't got it, he said. Could you pay me a portion of it, say, 10 cents? He shook his head. A nickel? I'm broke, kid. Then he took another swig. It was a fresh bottle, almost full. I can't give you any hard cash, kid but I'll see that you get all the milk you need. Then he explained. The milkman would arrive around four. I was to stay awake and listen for his knock. Elfric would keep the milkman occupied for at least 20 minutes. It was a bribe, a means of escaping payment for the debt, but I was hungry. But you ought to pay your debts, Elfric. You'd be in a bad spot if I was charging you interest. I'll pay you, kid, he said. I'll pay every last penny just as soon as I can. I walked back to my room, slamming Helfrich's door angrily. I didn't wish to seem cruel about the matter, but this was going too far. I knew that Jenny drank, cost him at least thirty cents a pint. Surely he could control his craving for alcohol long enough just to pay his debts. The night came reluctantly. I sat at the window, rolling some cigarettes with rough-cut, rough-cut tobacco and squares of toilet paper. This tobacco had been a whim of mine in more prosperous times. I. Bought a can of it, and the pipe for smoking it had been free, attached to the can by a rubber band, but I'd lost the pipe. The tobacco was so coarse it made a poor smoke in regular cigarette papers, but wrapped twice in toilet tissue, it was powerful and compact, sometimes bursting into flames. Then I came slowly, first the cool odor of it, and then the darkness. Beyond my window spread the great city, the street lamps, the red and blue and green neon tubes bursting to life like bright night flowers. I was not hungry, there were plenty of oranges under the bed, and that mysterious chortling in the pit of my stomach was nothing more than great clouds of tobacco smoke marooned there, trying frantically to find a way out. So it had happened at last. I was about to become a thief, a cheap milk stealer. Here was your flash in the pan genius, your your one story writer, a thief. I held my head in my hands and rocked back and forth, mother of God. Headlines in the paper. Promising writer caught stealing milk. Famous protege of J.C. Hackmuth, hauled into court on petty thief charge. Reporters swarming around me, flashlights popping. Give us a statement, Bandini. How did it happen? Well, fellas, it was like this, you see. I really got plenty of money, big sales of manuscripts and all that, but I was doing a yarn about a fellow who steals a quart of milk, and I wanted to write from experience. So that's what happened, fellas. Watch for the story in the post. I'm calling it Milk Thief. Leave me your address and I'll send y'all free copies." But it would not happen that way. Because nobody knows Arturo Bendini. And you'll get six months. They'll take you to the city jail. You'll be a criminal. And what'll your mother say? And what'll your father say? And can't you hear those fellows around the filling station in Boulder, Colorado? Can't you hear them snickering about the great writer caught stealing a quarter of milk? Don't do it, Arturo. If you've got an ounce of decency in you, don't do it. I rose from the chair and paced up and down. Almighty God, give me strength. Hold back this criminal urge. Then all at once, the whole plan seemed cheap and silly. And for a moment, I thought of something else to write in my letter to the great Hackmith. And for two hours, I wrote until my back ached. When I looked out of my window to the big clock on the Saint Paul Hotel, it was almost eleven. The letter to Hackmith was a very long one. Already, I had twenty pages. I read the letter. It seemed silly. I felt the blood in my face from blushes. Hackmoth would think me an idiot for writing such puerile nonsense, gathering the pages I tossed them into the wastebasket. Tomorrow was another day, and tomorrow I might get an idea for a short story. Well, I could eat a couple of oranges and go to bed. They were miserable oranges. Sitting on the bed, I dug my nails into their thin skins. My own flesh puckered, my mouth was filled with saliva, and I squinted at the thought of them. When I bit into the yellow pulp, it shocked me like a cold shower. Oh, Bandini, talking to the reflection in the dresser mirror, what sacrifices you make for your art. You might have been a captain of industry, a merchant prince, a big league ball player, leading hitter in the American league with an average of 4.15, but no. Here you are, crawling through the days, a starved genius, faithful to your sacred calling. What courage you possess. I lay in bed, sleepless in the darkness, Mighty Hackmuth, what would he say to all this? He would applaud. His powerful pen would eulogize me in well-turned phrases. And after all, that letter to Hackmuth wasn't such a bad letter. I got it up, dug it from the wastebasket, reread it. A remarkable letter, cautiously humored. Hackmuth would find it very amusing. It would impress upon him the fact that I was the self-same author of The Little Dog Laughed. Oh, there was a story for you and I opened a drawer filled with copies of the magazine that contained the story. Lying on the bed, I read it again, laughing and laughing at the wit of it, murmuring in amazement that I had written it. Then I took to reading it aloud with gestures before the mirror. When I finished, there were tears of delight in my eyes, and I stood before the picture of Hackmith, thanking him for recognizing my genius. I sat before the typewriter and continued the letter. The night deepened, the pages mounted Ah, if all writing were as easy as a letter to Hackmith, The pages piled up, 25, 30, until, look, down to my navel, where I detected a fleshy ring. The irony of it, I was gaining weight. Oranges were filling me out. And once I jumped up and did a number of setting-up exercises, I twisted and writhed, rolled, sweat flowed, and breathing came hard. Thirsty and exhausted, I threw myself on the bed. A glass of cool milk would be fine now. At that moment, I heard a knock on Helfrich's door. Then Helfrich's grunt as someone entered. It could be no one but the milkman. I looked at the clock. It was almost four. I dressed quickly, pants, shoes, no socks, and a sweater. The hallway was deserted, sinister in the red light of an old electric bulb. I walked deliberately, without stealth, like a man going to the lavatory down the hall. Two flights of winding, irritable stairs, and I was on the ground floor red and white Alden milk truck was parked close to the hotel wall in the moon-drenched alley, I reached into the truck and got two quart bottles firmly by their necks. They felt cool and delicious in my fist. A moment later, I was back in my room. The bottles of milk on the dresser table, they seemed to fill the room. They were like human things. They were so beautiful, so fat and prosperous. You, Arturo, I said, you lucky one. It may be the prayers of your mother, and it may be that God still loves you in spite of your tampering with atheists, but whatever it is, you're lucky. For all time's sake, I thought, for all, and for all time's sake, I knelt down and said grace, the way we used to do it in grade school, the way my mother taught us back home. Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts, which we're about to receive from Thy most bountiful hands, through the name of Christ our Lord, amen. And I added another prayer for good measure. Long after the milkman left Helfrick's room, I was still on my knees, a full half hour of prayers, until I was ravenous for the taste of milk, and my knees ached and a dull pain throbbed in my shoulder blades. When I got up, I staggered from cramped muscles, but it was going to be worthwhile. I took the toothbrush from my glass, opened one of the bottles and poured a full glass. I turned and faced the picture of J.C. Hackmuth on the wall. To you, Hackmuth, hooray for you. And I drank greedily until my throat suddenly choked and contracted and a horrible taste shook me. It was the kind of milk I hated. It was buttermilk. I spat it out, washed my mouth with water and hurry to look at the other bottle. It was buttermilk, too. <laughs> That's it. That's chapter fantastic, James. That is that is
0: a great great chapter.
1: It's wonderful. <laughs> I,
0: I love the, I, I love the incredibly unsubtle character names. The magazine editor named Hackmuth. The atheist <laughs> whose first part, his first syllable of his last name is Hell.
1: Hellfrick, yes.
0: Hellfrick, I mean. Those are, that stuff is great. Have you seen, I don't know if it's an adaptation of Ask the Dust, but there's a movie called Wait Until Spring Bandini. I think with Joe montegna
1: I want to say. As well, Bandini. It's possible, because I think he actually used the character elsewhere. I've just done yeah. a little, it's the only thing I've read. And I, I don't know that film, but I discovered this book. There's a recently published a very good book about the making of Chinatown, the movie mm. called "The Big Goodbye" uh, by Sam Wasson. And in the book, he mentions that when Robert Town in the seventies, when Robert Town was researching, working on the script for Chinatown, he stumbled across "Ask the Dusk in a library. It was mm-hmm. obscure at the time, and when it was originally published, there were only like a little over two thousand editions. Then it was sort of republished later. I think in the that late 70s. very took off. Yeah, and Charles Bukowski had given d- written an intro for a later edition and it got a little more attention, but it, so it was one of Town's influences for Chinatown, not in terms of story so much as just a feel—the way people talked in the '30s in LA, and just sure. the feel of LA back then. Sure, there's another extraordinary chapter where <laughs> there's another crime adjacent chapter where a guy he knows decides to drive into the valley to steal a cow. <laughs> <laughs> And they, and they go on this crazy just
0: like trip. today. <laughs> exactly,
1: because that's where the farms are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's an extraordinary chapter, though a bit darker than this chapter.
0: Sure, no, but that's great, and that's
1: very much in keeping with what I'm doing. But I also just discovered that a few years ago, Robert Towne made a f- directed a film adaptation of this book. Oh, okay. But I, haven't, I, I'm, I don't feel the need to see it, because I just want the book to live with me for a while. Sure, sure. I but get it's, that. It's just so evocative of LA, uh, timelessly in many ways, and well, then yeah. of its Depression-era time too.
0: Yeah, as, uh-huh. as someone who has dodged yeah. a milkman uh, or dodged a landlord while <laughs> exactly. having people owe me money,
1: uh, and it That's also reminds me—it reminds me very much of uh, one of my favorite LA books, and I'm sure one of yours from the same period. Uh, Nathaniel West, Day of the Locust. Of course, he even and it's funny because this was published in thirty nine, and I believe Day of the Locust came out in thirty nine as well. Yeah, that sounds so right. There Would have been no direct influence, uh, but there's even passages in this where he, where uh, Fante describes like the people who come to L.A. to die, and he practically uses the same language that uh, West uses. It's just, it's just they're all they're both drawing from the same well. Sure. <laughs> happening and they're both also really super evocative and extremely funny too when they're funny they're and this chapter is hilarious i think especially the payoff at the end (laughs) it's funny because uh i did a i did a video a couple of days ago
0: about the uh, introduction of the character of carmen sternwood in in the big sleep and of course you're in a music video of a song by amy mann where she name checks both carmen sternwood and the day of the locust uh nathaniel uh west so fun stuff
1: have you seen the movie with donald sutherland
0: yes i have not yeah. it's a crazy crazy movie it's worth seeing for observing the three minutes in time when william atherton was believed to be a leading man <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: Hot off sugarland express
0: yeah exactly <laughs> that, exactly dale is coming up <laughs> sugarland express going down and supercilious character actor for the rest of his life after that. But I like him and he's very good in it. And of course, you have to get past the uh, cultural oddity of Donald Sutherland's character being named Homer Simpson.
1: Yes, yes. Well, you get past that. You have to
0: take seriously a movie in which people are constantly saying, but what will Homer Simpson think? What will Homer Simpson do next?
1: Now, I love Donald Sutherland based on having read the book several times. Mm -hmm. I don't see him in that character, Mm -hmm. but I'll, you know who I see from the period who'd be more of that character is Elliot Gould. Interesting. Because I think Elliot Gould pro- can project a sort of thickness mm. in every sense that I see in that character. But yeah, what do Sutherland,
0: I do? Sutherland <laughs> leaned into the, uh, as he did with a lot of things in that period, he leaned into the uh, isolated weirdo aspect yes. of Homer Simpson as opposed to the thick of it
1: and i could see how that could work i'm curious but i love that book but this is yeah, give, give give the movie a watch it is it is the quintessential karen black movie if yes. nothing else Well, karen black as well yeah it is one the of the great book. moments of my life of my act career was i'm in an obscure i did an obscure film which i won't mention because it's not good but karen black is in it uh, and we were in a scene together we didn't i and but I was doing something with another character in the scene, but she was present in the scene. And then we cut. And then we, I sat down, and Karen Black turned to me and said, "James, you took control of that scene." <laughs> and Karen Black telling me I took control of That's the scene was one of the all-time top five compliments. Absolutely, right up there, absolutely. top five. <laughs> well, James, thanks for joining me on the daily. My pleasure. Episode. I got and that the was a memo. Great contribution. All we had in the house was beer. But I poured it in a glass to try to class it up. There you uh, go. Fancy. I
0: appreciate it. Thanks, James. And we'll, uh,
1: we'll do it again sometime. By all means. Thank you. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.